0: Well, good morning. Turn in your Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 to 25. And um, we will be continuing our series in the book of Hebrews starting next week. I know some of you were here last semester as we were going through Hebrews. We uh, finished last semester with chapter 7. We finished up chapter 7. We'll start in chapter 8 next week. We'll be in uh, Hebrews 8 next week. But for this morning, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we begin the semester. And uh, while you're getting there, I have a couple of just remaining announcements that I wanted to uh, uh, share with you before we begin. First of all, on your chairs, you'll notice there's a green sign-up form for small groups. I know I talked to a few of you this morning before the service who were trying to kind of figure out what to sign up for. Um, We would love to have you sign up. Our small group's will not begin this week, but they will start the second week of school, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday nights. If you're a freshman, uh, how many freshmen do we have in here? Let's, let's do your class 2014. Okay, no one wants to do it. All right, <laughs> class 2014. Um, if you are a freshman in here, we'd encourage you to go to Dulos. Uh, Dulos will be studying the book of 2 Timothy this semester, and uh, we would love to have you there. They meet in the Reed Building on Wednesday nights, not Reed Arena, but the Reed Building, which is across from G. Raleigh. Uh, on the back of Kyle Field, on the east side of Kyle Field. Um, We'd love to have you guys check that out. And then Upperclassmen, we have growth groups, servant team, essentials, and there are descriptions on the sheet. Most of those meet on Tuesday nights, but we also have alternate nights throughout the week. And uh, we really would love to have you all check that out. We Love our Sunday morning gathering, but really for us at Grace, the process of discipleship we believe is most effectively accomplished when you're in a smaller group of men and women who can help you understand the scripture, study it, and hold one another accountable. So we would love to have you guys check it out. If you fill out that green form, there's a black box in the back at that welcome center. Just drop it in there and uh, someone will give you a call this week to help set you up with a group. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, Father, we are grateful for your word, for in it we find the words of life so that we can know how we ought to serve you and obey you, but most of all because in your word we find written the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you that you gave your only son for us. He died for us, for our sins, because we are unworthy to have a relationship with you We are unworthy of eternal life, and yet you gave your Son who died for us and rose again. And Lord, we sit here this morning as men and women who are unworthy and yet grateful because of what you've done. And we pray that as we start a new semester, you would focus our minds and hearts on the truth of your word and on the truth and power of the gospel, which may seem like foolishness to this world, but we know is the wisdom of God. And so we pray that. We pray as we study the scripture, you would help us, Lord, help us understand and uh, help us to believe and empower us to obey. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, my wife and I celebrated our wedding anniversary, our uh, 11-year wedding anniversary. So uh, we have now passed the decade mark and are headed toward the second decade. Um, It's not that mysterious or difficult actually to do. Uh, Just marry a godly woman and just try to be very nice to her for the rest of your life. And that's it, all right? So uh, we are uh, now in our 12th year. We just finished our 11th year. And so uh, as we celebrate, uh, it's always a great time to reminisce and remember uh, the history of our relationship. And I couldn't help but think yesterday about the day that I proposed to her. Uh, Shannon and I had been dating for... Uh, about seven months before I proposed. And uh, those who know me know that uh, I like to plan. I'm a planner, and so uh, I always have a detailed plan before I go into anything, much less a major event like a proposal. And so I had a plan set up ahead of time, and my plan was that I was going to pick her up at at her house about five o'clock, And uh, from there, we were going to go to dinner, we were going to eat a nice dinner at a nice restaurant, and then I had a special spot uh, set aside in the country, a spot that was meaningful to me for my college days, and I was going to propose to her there right as the sun went down, and uh, I had a poem that I had written for her and everything, and so uh, thank you, yeah, I appreciate that. All right. (laughs) So uh I had it I had it very well planned. I even knew exactly when the sun was going to go down at 6:56 p.m. and so I knew all of these things and I had this plan and uh right about uh, I'd say 4:45 she called me on the phone and she said I'm running late. And uh she was running about 20 or 30 minutes late. Well, immediately I started to panic, right? Because the whole plan would unravel. If we couldn't get to dinner in time, we couldn't get over to the sunset in time. We were going to miss it. And what I envisioned was not going to come to pass. And so uh, I began to panic a little bit, but I kind of rolled with it. I didn't want to give away the secret, So I went over to her house a little bit late, 5.20, 5.30, picked her up. And uh, I immediately, we get in the car, I give her flowers, I go, all right, let's go. We get in the car, I hit the gas, right? And I'm going to this restaurant, and I'm sweating, and I'm nervous, and she's looking over at me like, what in the world is going on with this guy? We get to the restaurant, we order, and I'm just shoveling it in. I don't even remember what I ate, and I'm looking over at her every so often going, is it good? Are you finishing? Are you doing well, right? And so, <laughs> you about done, right? And so she's, she's like, what is the deal? Like, we've never eaten at a restaurant this nice in our whole relationship, and I'm rushing her through it, right? So uh, she's eating as fast as she can. I get the check. We run to the car, and I get in the car, and I again, I hit the gas, and I'm determined to make it to this spot, and I'm just flying through town all the way to the other side of town, and I'm about to uh, head north, and I'm beginning to sweat, get nervous. She's starting to get nervous now because I'm nervous, and as we're headed out there, uh, after about five or ten minutes in the car, she looks over at me and goes, you're acting really weird. Uh, is it your plan to take me out and dump my body in the woods somewhere? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, immediately, I was just horrified, right? I had this whole thing planned out, and here it is. And I thought, just trust me, right? Trust me. You can trust me. Well, uh, just so I resolve the story, we did make it out there in time. And literally, we drove up right as we saw the sun go whoosh, like that, right below the horizon line. I read my poem. She said yes when I proposed, so she's still with me, right? And... Uh, it all worked out, but we both learned an important lesson, all right, I learned that sometimes I just need to relax, enjoy the moment, right? Not everything always can go according to plan. It's an important lesson, especially once you have kids, just relax. Uh, for her, she learned that even when somebody is acting crazy, there might be a plan behind the madness. That's the more important lesson for the sake of my sermon. I'm not saying it's the more important life lesson, all right? But for the sake of what I'm going to talk about, even when somebody's acting crazy, there might be a plan. It may look like somebody's doing something nuts, but they may have planned out carefully and they know exactly what they're doing. And as we look at the scripture, we see that that's not only true of people at times, that's also true of God. And in fact, throughout the scripture, God has a pattern of plans that seem crazy, God telling people to do wacky things, seemingly acting in just crazy ways, and yet he's got a plan behind the madness that is much, much greater than we could even imagine. Go all the way back and think about the Old Testament, Moses and the Israelites and the exodus from Egypt, and God sends this baby in a basket to redeem the people. And God tells Moses, I want you to take this staff and you toss it on the ground. That staff's gonna become a snake and that snake's gonna eat the other snake. And there's gonna be all these signs and wonders that are going to force Pharaoh to let you leave the land. Take that staff, hold it over the water and the water's gonna split in two and you march through even when it seems helpless. God has this plan to redeem his people in the midst of some crazy stuff. Joshua in the battle of Jericho leads the people and God says, I don't want you to fight. All I want you to do is you just march around and around and around. And the wall is just going to fall down. And yet God has a plan in the midst of the madness that's greater than they could have even imagined. Gideon, as you get to the book of Judges, God says, all right, Gideon, I want you to winnow your 10,000 men down to 300. And you're going to, with those 300 men, you're going to beat tens of thousands of soldiers just with some little lamps, some little clay pots and trumpets. And you're going to win. And so God has this history of doing seemingly crazy things, and yet in the midst of the craziness, he's got a plan. The greatest example of that we see in the scripture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just got back from celebrating Christmas with your family, and of course the Christmas story is the ultimate story of God becoming a man, this baby who is the son of God in a stable, in a manger. And it makes little sense why the king of the universe would be in a manger. Yet that baby grows up, and that baby becomes a man, the Son of God, who dies on a cross, the most ignoble form of death known to the Romans. And then he rose again so we could have life. And circumstances that seem foolish, crazy, bizarre, God uses to his glory. Even in the midst of the madness, he's got a plan. The reality is, though, as the scripture says, those who don't believe the message of the gospel view it as foolishness as silliness, as nonsense. And as as you and I go throughout our semester, as you walk into your classes on campus, as you go into your dorm, as you interact with maybe your family, your friends, you're gonna face that attitude. As you begin to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and you tell people the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be men and women who will say, that's nonsense. We don't believe in people who rise from the dead. That doesn't happen. Once you go in the grave, you're in the grave. We don't believe in a God who created the world because we know scientifically somehow that didn't happen. And so you're going to face this attitude of men and women who say that the message of the gospel is foolishness and silliness and you and I have to make a decision. Will we continue to proclaim the message and the glories of the gospel even in the face of a world that thinks it's foolish? Will we live our lives in passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ even though it is completely at odds with the thinking system of our world? And the attitude that uh, the gospel is foolish, the attitude that the resurrection never happened, the attitude that there's not a God, these are not new things. 1 Corinthians is written in the first century and Christians are already facing ridicule and laughter because of their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you stand in good company with men like the Apostle Paul and saints throughout the ages who have worshipped Jesus Christ even though it seems foolish in the eyes of man. Because it is the very wisdom of God. And Paul was a man who lived for the gospel even to the very end of his life, even to his death. And so here in 1 Corinthians 1, what we see is Paul's reason for saying, look, the gospel is worth your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worth your life. It is worth risking everything. It is worth investing your time, your energy, your reputation in building up the kingdom of God. And ultimately he's going to say this, the world sees the gospel as foolishness, but those of us who have been redeemed by the power of the gospel know that it is the wisdom of God. Look at verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the first thing he says is very simple. God's wisdom and man's wisdom are opposed. God's wisdom and man's wisdom are opposed. The two don't get along. God's wisdom is perfect, infinite, And God is unseen. We don't see him with our eyes. And man's wisdom, it's finite, it's imperfect, and it deals with our senses. And so the reason I think that our world says that God's wisdom is foolishness is because we don't see on a daily basis the results of what God is doing. And so we tend to believe that the only thing that is real is what we can see with our eyes and engage in with our senses. If you think back a couple hundred years, There was a man by the name of Louis Pasteur. Many of you are familiar with Louis Pasteur. Pick up a uh, jug of milk, it'll say it's been pasteurized, right? It's been, uh, uh, they did something to it. All right, Louis Pasteur. But one of the things that Louis Pasteur did was that he proved that germs, germs are the cause of disease in human beings. So uh, he proved that disease doesn't spontaneously generate in your body. Prior to the 1800s, they believed that if you got sick, it just meant you got sick, There was no underlying cause except the disease just spontaneously uh, somehow erupted in your body. Louis Pasteur proved with his experiments that that's not true. There are actually microscopic organisms making you sick. But people thought that was ridiculous. Why? Because I can't see them. I can't touch them. I can't look at them with my eyes. And so one professor said this, a man named Pierre Pache said this, Louis Pasteur's germ theory is ridiculous fiction. Why did he say that? Germs are invisible. It doesn't make sense. His senses couldn't apprehend it. And I think often that's what happens with the gospel. We tend to say, look, my my senses, I can't feel it. I can't taste it. I can't hear it. I don't see things happening. I don't have hard evidence or proof. And so it must be foolish. And that is the way of the world. When the reality is, if God exists, he exists above and beyond our senses. God is greater than what we can perceive And we have the history of the scripture and we have the movement of God in history to show us that yes, God is active and God exists and God is real. But on a day-to-day basis, we're called to live by faith. And so that seems foolish to the world. A few quotes from some modern skeptics and wise people. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, says, religion teaches the dangerous nonsense that death is not the end. Benjamin Franklin, I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies. Carl Sagan, the late Carl Sagan, you can't convince a believer of anything for their belief is not based on evidence, it's based on a deep-seated need to believe. In other words, this is the way of the world. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of man are in opposition. Paul says, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness, stupidity, a lack of good sense. How can it really be true that a man could rise from the dead? Seems like foolishness to the world. And you're going to face that sort of opposition. And what Paul says is this. Despite the world's opinion, God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And he's made it ineffective. And he's proven it wrong through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ destroys the wisdom of the wise. And that's the rest of this passage. Verses 19 to 25. Look at verses 19 to 20. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. All right, the first thing it says is simply he made wise people foolish. And how did he accomplish that again? By rising Jesus from the dead. Because we can speculate all day long about what God is and what God isn't and whether God exists. But the reality is if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, all of that wisdom, all of those ideas that the only things that are real are those things we can perceive with our senses, all of that goes out the window because a man rose from the dead to prove that God is real, to prove that God has redeemed the world through his son, Jesus Christ. So he made wise people foolish. Uh, Many of you have perhaps seen the old movie, The Princess Bride. Uh, Yeah, okay, good. I love that movie. It's about, I don't know, 25 years old. But there's a great scene in which uh, there's this little Italian man named Vizzini, little bald Italian man, and he steals Princess Buttercup. He kidnaps Princess Buttercup and asks for ransom. You may remember he takes her away and he's going to uh, start a war by asking for ransom from the princess and it's going to uh, increase supposedly the prince's approval, Prince Humperdinck's approval rating. And so Vizzini takes Princess Buttercup and yet he's tracked by Wesley, Buttercup's true love. Wesley chases them down, defeats the uh, swordsman, defeats the giant, and then finally comes face to face with Vizzini. And as they sit down and they begin to face off, Visini challenges Wesley to what? A battle of wits to the death And one of the things that Vicini says is this. He says, you've heard of uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, morons, right? That's what he says. He figures himself to be smarter than all of these guys. And he challenges Wesley to this battle using Iocane powder. Which cup is the Iocane powder in? And they go back and forth. And Vecini has this twisted logic about why his cup is the right one to drink from. And back and forth they go and they both drink from them. And then Vecini realizes that uh, he believes he's one, he starts to laugh, and then what? He drops over dead. Right? We find out both of them were poisoned, right? Wesley has an immunity to iocane powder. Right? What's the point? The point is very simple. Visini believes himself to be very, very intelligent, but he's not. He's foolish. And as I look at this passage, that seems to be what God is saying, what Paul is saying about the wisdom of this age. Men and women speculate, They write books, they teach classes, and they say the wisdom of God is foolish. And Paul says, no, the reality is inverse from what you think it is. Because when God raised Jesus from the dead, he made all of these wise people fools. The three terms that are used here, verse 20, where is the wise man? That's the Greek philosopher. Where is the scribe? That's the Jewish expert of the law. Where is the debater of this age? That would be anybody who thinks he's wiser than God, and he says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Why? Because I am God. They are not wiser than I am. And so God has made the wisdom of this age foolish. Who are the wise people of our age? Maybe celebrities, maybe professors, whoever it is, maybe scientists, maybe politicians, and scripture says, no. Compared to me, they're foolish. And so you make a choice. Will I follow the wisdom of God or will I follow the wisdom of man? As you go throughout the semester, Make a decision when you're in your classes, when you're in your dorm, when you're with your friends and family. Will I listen to the wisdom of God? Will I listen to the wisdom of man? God's made wise people foolish. Secondly, verses 21 to 24, he made worldly wisdom worthless. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The idea is this, that not only is God wiser than the world, but the wisdom of the world does not serve to redeem or to save you from the problem you really have. Because the problem you really have, and the problem I really have, is not a lack of understanding. The problem you and I really have is that we are separated from God and destined for an eternity apart from him in hell. The problem we really have is that we've rejected the wisdom of God, and as a result, we're destined for destruction. And it doesn't matter how many books I write, it doesn't matter how much I say, it doesn't matter how much I know, I cannot overcome that deficiency. Look at it this way. If we were to go rafting down the Guadalupe River this afternoon, and as we're halfway down the river, suddenly you fall in, and you're beginning to drown, what do you want me to do? I could do a couple of things. I could say, look, it's real simple. As long as the downward force of your body does not become greater, I'm sorry, as long as the upward, yeah, the downward force of your body does not become greater than the upward force of the water, your buoyancy is going to be just about right and you're going to float. So propel your arms in a circular motion and you'll stay up above the water. Got it? You good? No. Why? Because you're still in the water. You're still drowning. What you want me to do is what? Toss you a life preserver. You want me to do something effective. You don't want me to do something intellectual. And what this passage is saying is this. That through the foolishness of the message of the cross, just like God has done throughout history, God chooses to save through a message that seems unbelievably foolish to our world. The son of God died and he rose again. And so what he's done is he hasn't explained to us his wisdom. He hasn't given us uh, a bunch of intellectual understanding, but instead what he's given is his son. He said, you can grab that life preserver for eternal life, or you can try to reason why you're smarter than God. And the reality is that the gospel, although it is beyond man's wisdom, it's not unreasonable. It doesn't mean we have to shut off our brain. It doesn't mean we stop thinking. But what it does mean is that it is counterintuitive with the wisdom of the world. Everybody knows that people don't crawl out of their graves. And yet the scripture tells us it happened. And I think there's good historical reason to believe that it happened. And so if it happened, regardless of what someone may say about why people can't get up out of the grave, the reality is that if Jesus rose from the dead, God's wisdom trumps all of it. And the point of what Paul is saying is this. The wisdom of the world doesn't save anybody from death. It says, look, Jews look for signs. That is, they want power. They want miracles. Greeks look for wisdom. They want something intellectual because the cross makes no sense. And yet God says, I will not allow somebody to have a relationship with me in eternal life apart from accepting this message that is at odds with the wisdom of the world. And the the message of the cross, especially for a first century person, was a message of shame and ignominy. It was not a message of wisdom. Philip Yancey puts it this way, says this, it took time for the church to come to terms with the ignominy of the cross. Church fathers forbade its depiction in art until the reign of the emperor Constantine who had seen a vision of the cross and who also banned it as a method of execution. Now though the symbol is everywhere, artists beat gold into the shape of the Roman execution device. Baseball players cross themselves before batting, and candy confectioners even make chocolate crosses for the faithful to eat during Holy Week. Strange as it may seem, Christianity has become a religion of the cross, the gallows, the electric chair, the gas chamber in modern terms. And the reality is that's absolutely what it should be. Because in the shame of the cross, that's what Paul says, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the shame of the cross, God says, in that crazy plan is the wisdom and the power and the gospel of God, it is eternal life. The question for us then is how do we feel about the cross of Jesus Christ? Maybe that you've not really ever wrestled with it or come to terms with what it means to you. It may be that you've not ever really asked yourself the question, is it really true, is it really possible that Jesus Christ arose from the dead, that he died for my sins and he arose from the dead? It may be that you're here and you're here for the very first time and you've not really ever come to a place where you believe in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of your sins, of your disobedience against God and eternal life. How do you feel about the cross? And if you are a believer, I think the question for us is this. Are we ready to recognize that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of the world? And will we invest our time, our energy, our lives, our gifts, our abilities in the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ this semester? Or are we ashamed of the cross? And if I'm honest, many, many times I'm I'm ashamed because it seems like such a crazy, foolish message to the world. And yet God says it is wiser and stronger than the wisdom of the world. And that's what verse 25 says. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be vindicated. Jesus Christ is returning. And his message for us is believe in the message of the cross and then you spend your life making disciples. That's Matthew 28. You pursue telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You pursue encouraging others to follow Jesus Christ. And you focus your eyes on him and despite the wisdom of this world saying, that's a waste of your time. It's a message that carries no traction. You pursue Jesus Christ and the wisdom of God. If you're here for the first time, uh, you should know that here at Grace, that's our mission as a church, is to help equip and empower you guys to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to help make followers of Jesus Christ. We want to equip you to know the word of God. We want to equip you to pray. We want to equip you to worship. We want to equip you to lead others to know Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we have our small groups. That's why we meet here on Sunday morning. That's why we exist as a ministry. Because we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than the wisdom of man. And so as you begin this semester, the question is, how can you more boldly live in light of the message of the gospel? What are some steps you may need to take in your life? Spend some time growing closer to God through prayer and through study of the word. To maybe openly and boldly share the gospel with a friend, a roommate, a classmate. And identify yourself with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I do this because I know, I know, despite the wisdom of the world, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then their wisdom is wrong. And the wisdom of God is correct. And so Paul gave his life for it. And You may not die for the gospel. I certainly hope that you don't. I hope that you're here for 50, 60, 70 years to come. But are you willing to devote your life to the message of the wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just confess that many times we live with a sense of shame about your gospel. I know I do. And yet, it is immeasurably, infinitely valuable because it is the message of life. Lord, it's a message we often don't understand fully because your wisdom is greater than ours. But Lord, we know from your word, and we understand from history, and we know through your spirit that it is true. If there are any in here who have not yet believed, I pray that your spirit would move in them to believe. And for those of us who do, Lord, make us faithful. Father, we thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.